Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, today we're talking to Carlos Mesqua, a veteran news anchor, talk show host, co-founder of Beyond TV, the recipient of 22 Emmy Awards, one for Outstanding Journalistic Enterprise, and another for his coverage of Mexican politics. He also received hey. awards from the Associated Press, the Radio Television News Association's Golden Mics, and was part of the team that won the prestigious George Foster Peabody Award. Please welcome Carlos Mesqua to the Untied Podcast. Thank you so much. Good to be with you guys. <laughs> uh, we're happy you could make it. So, um, so yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, first of all, the fact that you won 22 Emmy Awards. Yeah, while you were saying that, I actually held it up and did a close-up on the camera. I'll do it again because, uh, yeah, it's like I like to thank the little people who made these happen. Uh, <laughs> the truth about it is that, you know, people don't win Emmys or awards like that in television or in anything really without a great supporting cast, producers and writers and people who, camera people who, who really make you look good. And I've been fortunate to work with some of the very best people in media. I mean, these guys just ele guys and gals just elevated my game. And that's what it's all about is elevating your game. And every time you get nominated, you go, oh, really, was it that good? And then you win and you just can't believe it because you just do it because that's your job and you want to do the very best. And it's so gratifying when somebody says, here, have a trophy for it. But you you moved around. Were, were you just on um, Fox or were you moved? You moved around a little bit, right? Between stations. Yeah. I mean, I've had a, uh, a very long, I mean, 45 years in television. I've worked at a dozen TV stations. And honestly, in the early years of anybody's career, back at least back in the 70s when I started, it was pretty common for people to move around. So you would spend a year or a year and a half at a small TV station and then move to another TV station to, to get a raise because the current boss is never going to give you a raise. And so you go to the next station. And so for the first five years, I moved around quite a bit. And then I, then I settled in. I, I spent a, a bit of time in San Diego, my hometown, working as a reporter, got a job at CBS News in New York. And uh, after a couple of years there, I really didn't fit in with the New York vibe. So I moved back to Los Angeles and, and worked on the KTLA Morning News, where I spent almost 20 years. And I've been in L.A. almost 30 years, 30 plus years. Uh, so I've worked most of my life here in Los Angeles. Um, wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot. I mean, I. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long I, time. So. <laughs> so yeah. So starting from, I guess, the beginning of your journey, uh, like what would you say the moment you decided to get into like broadcasting? Yeah, that's an interesting story, because when I was at university, I um, was majoring in fine art. I wanted to be a professional oil painter. I wanted to study in Italy. I wanted to, to learn the, the master's touch and to be able to do things the way they did it. Uh, I've been painting since I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. And I really felt that that was my calling in life until I met a girl <laughs> and <laughs> fell in love with the girl. And we got a little serious. So we went home to meet mom and dad. And and dad was a very successful dentist. And he said, so what are you studying in school uh, there, Carlos? I said, fine art. He goes, well, that's a nice hobby. <laughs> How are you going to make a living? I said, "Let's selling my artwork. I'm really good at this. And he goes, I don't care if you're Rembrandt. You're going to starve as an artist. And uh, no one like that's going to be able to support my daughter. Look at how she's used to living, right? So he actually helped me, even though he was criticizing. He helped me kind of think about what I was doing in school. 
And I looked around for something perhaps in advertising and, you know, well, so anyway, so the, uh, so, so I started looking around at school to see if I could uh, find something that would suit my talents. And I was particularly good at writing uh, and reading and writing because English is my second language. So I excelled in, in English and I got A's in English. And so news writing uh, was a class that I took. And before I knew it, I was into, into broadcasting. I was doing radio programs and then eventually TV programs. And that's what launched my career. Wow. Carlos, my, uh, my father would also, or always give me crap because, um, in high school I would get like A pluses in Spanish class. And then when it came to the English classes, I would get like C's and sometimes lower, but that's not important. Um, but in your entire career, are there any uh, stories you can look back on and you're just like, wow, I can't believe like I had the honor or privilege of, um, breaking it and, or just speaking on it? Well, I mean, there, during my watch, and I call it my watch in the, the years that I've worked in television, um, in L.A., the, the big story was the Rodney King beating and the, and the following riots and what happened. And I covered that in L.A., and that was a big moment uh, in my career. Um, I also covered the Mexico City earthquake in 1985. Uh, I covered uh, one of the most spectacular mafia hits you've ever seen in, uh, in New York City. Uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, an, an amazing experience for a young reporter to cover a mafia hit in a restaurant that looked like something out of the Godfather. And then of course, nine 11 was a big moment for me. Um, you know, I, I was sitting at the anchor chair when the second plane hit and, uh, and we thought the first, hit, the first one was an accident. The second one, clearly something was really weird. And, uh, that changed everybody's life forever. I think that was a seminal moment in my career. And over the years, I've covered you know, fires and earthquakes and flooding and all kinds of dis disasters. And I've done that all over the world. And, and uh, you know, the, it's, it's kind of like right place, right time kind of thing. And in the last 45 years, a lot of cool things have happened that I've covered. Uh, and I mean, cool by, you know, journalistically cool. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, mayhem i guess and death and mayhem which is kind of stock and trade for journalists which is terrible but that's that's the way life is for us right yeah that makes sense, that makes sense. <laughs> i'm glad I mean, it makes sense to you. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess if it's a big enough story obviously you can't you know you can't just ignore it no so, you can't. so so going from you know this you know covering the you know chaos and mayhem that you know the world brings on uh, you know, you worked your way through the different stations, moved around a bunch, and then you ended up finally, you know, winning your first Emmy award, uh, for, uh, when was like, what was the feeling like when you just like hmm. saw the first one and you were like, the, you know, just held it. <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, honestly, I didn't expect it. Uh, I was nominated for a terrible story, a tragedy that I covered in San Diego, uh, where two kids were um, play, were playing with an unexploded bomb in the canyons of San Diego, where George Patton used to train his his uh, you know his uh, troops in in that in those canyons with uh, you know the tanks for World War II, and so there were a lot of unexploded bombs in those canyons that eventually they they were able to clear out, but unfortunately these two kids found one of the bombs and it killed both of them. And I covered the story and uh, I guess the story was emotional enough and strong enough that it, it won my first Emmy. I didn't expect it. 
And uh, I felt really weird about it. I have to be honest with you. It felt really strange to be winning an award for something that was so tragic. I would learn later throughout the years, subsequent years, of course, that that was kind of the way it was, that you really can't control what the story is, but how you produce it and how you approach it and what you say and how you say it and what kind of uh, feelings you, you emote from the stuff that you write and the stuff that you say, that's how, that's really what wins hearts and minds in media. And that's how you tell a story and be as truthful and objective as you can. And, uh, and that first time I'm standing on stage, literally shaking because I was so surprised, first of all, to win. Um, and then thinking about what can I say that doesn't sound flip or stupid. I don't even remember what I said. I think I've mumbled a bunch of stuff and thanked everybody that helped me. But uh, yeah, that was a very strange moment. You know, Emmy 22, a whole different ball game. <laughs> By the time I had, I had been on stage so much, I had said, okay, that night, the, the one I, the, when I won my 21st and 22nd Emmy, uh, was one night and, uh, and, and I had done some, a medical story and another story that, that, uh, had done very well, but it was more of a featurey story. A lot easier to say thank you and be kind of fun and happy and, and, and buoyant about it. But, well, I tell you what, news runs the gamut. It, it's, you just never know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, we were even talking about that because, you know, when we were looking over the show notes right before this, I was like, you know, we were talking about like 22 Emmys. Like, yeah, we didn't even have 22 friends. Like <laughs> by the time you get I don't to believe 22, because <laughs> you think about it, by the time you get to 22 Emmys, you're like added to the shelf. You know what I mean? It's right. like it's like, thank you. You know, all this stuff like you still feel the same way. But like the actual Emmy, you're like, yeah, I've held one of these before. Well, and it's like, are they are they all in a trophy case somewhere, or like, are they just around the house as paperweights now? At this point? Yeah, no, they're in a they're actually in a trophy case. Well put. Uh, we bought a, a an armoire with glass around it, and they're very pretty, and they look really nice. And I, this one, I just yanked out of the box and and put it up here so that I could I I, I do all of my interviews and things for my for Beyond TV right here. And so the Emmy's always there to remind people, you know, that I'm legit. Otherwise, I'd just be just some other guy in a black shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we would like to be legit. So if you want to send one or two over this way, okay. that way people will take us seriously. That'd be great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and then people will ask ask us about them. They'll be like, oh, you guys want an Emmy? I'm like, no, no, no. We, but we know the guy. Yeah. Won those, so. <laughs> we know a guy who has a guy who has an Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's you know that's what friends do. We just borrow so, stuff. So off. speaking of Beyond TV, like what was uh, what was it like going from like working at the different TV networks and stations to kind of just being like I'm gonna run my own? Like what was that thought process like? Well, eventually, I mean, after I think after doing what I did for so many years, I really felt that it was time for me to transition to the executive side, and felt that there was a need for uh, more Latino representation at the upper echelon of, of network television. And I, I just couldn't push through the glass ceiling. It's really, really tough to push through. It's a, it's a very tight-knit club and only a selected few. Uh, you know, when you can think, think about all the media companies that are out there, there's maybe a couple dozen big media companies, and they're all, you know, pretty much part of the same club. These people have known each other for years, and it's really tough to break through. So I said, let's, uh, let's think outside the box. So I had a conversation with my daughter, who's also a media executive. She used to um, work at E! Networks and uh, work at Current TV, did all their live stuff. Uh, and she said, why don't we build our own network? There's technology now that we can do that. 
And so we set out to do just that, thinking that we could actually do something. And we started off with one little show, and now we have eight shows and a network that distributes all over the world. Uh, we're signing deals to uh, provide video and content to a um, hundred stations around the country, and it's just really grown. And and the truth of the matter is that that we're in charge. We we run our own business. It's our own company. Uh, we call the shots. We we bring in who we want. We work with who we want. Uh, we you know we we like people, and so if they're good people and they have an idea and good content, we promote them and help them and and. And along the way, we hope to make some money. So that's kind of the, the way that is. And, and my vision of it, I mean, if I can be as big thinking as I could be, would be that it would be as big as Netflix and Hulu and all of those, and that we would grow to that uh, to that size. But right now, we're just, you know, we're, we're a, a pretty feisty startup, and we're doing pretty well. And Beyond TV is uh, B-E-O-N-D.TV. For those of you who are listening and want to want to see what I look like when I'm doing a, my my show, you can check that out. But it's really a lot of fun. It's a lot. It's look. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for an old guy like me. But it's it's really fun. And so Beyond TV now has has grown to eight shows, soon to be nine. We're going to be seen in uh, ninety plus TV stations around the country, uh, already on on digital platform and growing on Roku, Amazon Fire. And Apple TV, and so we're we're just you know expanding every single day, and it's kind of fun because it's a whole new world for me as opposed to just being an anchor or news reporter. Uh, I I'm now running my own little media empire, and with our team who's terrifically talented, and just like you know getting an award, you can't do it alone. And this team has been really producing even through the pandemic, which is kind of fun. That's awesome. And well, you're still at, you're still doing that other part that you're used to though, yeah. with the anchor. Uh, yeah. And then you have your co-host with you, which, what, what was her name? Lisa Remillard. Yeah. So Lisa and I, that was the first show we developed was Carlos and Lisa. Lisa and I worked together in San Diego and we had a great time. So we thought we'd, we'd start our own little uh, talk show and it turned into a pretty big talk show. And we've had all kinds of big guests and fun guests. And, and really it's, it's, it's kind of like, Ryan and Kelly, but you know, I'm a lot older than Ryan, <laughs> younger than Kelly. So, so it's kind of a fun mix and we talk about a lot of things and we have fun and we poke fun at each other, but that was kind of the nucleus of our company. So we started off with the Carlos and Lisa piece and then moved on to other things. So now we have a Las Vegas show. We have beyond the blockchain. We have a travel show. We have a cooking show. We have all kinds of things that are developing and, and the network is, is starting to grow and, and I hope to be as big as Netflix and, and Hulu and all of them. Yeah. Well, and I, th those were the clips that I saw were the ones of you and Lisa uh, yeah. when I was doing this, because uh, that's what came up. You know, when I was doing research and Googled, yeah, I was like, uh, it was like Carlos and Lisa. And I was <laughs> like, which I mean, I had known of, I just hadn't seen any clips before, but it was, uh, it was you guys look like you're having a great time. And I think the chemistry, like they're like, on, on camera chemistry is really what sells a show, what makes it great. And I think you guys are like killing it with that. And uh, do you Thanks. like, it looks super natural. What do you, did you guys like, I mean, you obviously worked together before, but like, did, was it right off the bat? You guys just hit it off. No, no, heck no, no. It, interestingly enough, when we first met, there was a distinct dislike between the two of us. I, I don't think she liked me and I didn't care for her much. Uh, <laughs> and actually that kind of grating uh, uh, tension between us was what really made it good. Because she would say something ridiculous and I, 
and I'd say, what are you talking about? Or I'd say something like old school, you know, baby boomer kind of thing. And she would go, God, you're so old. And so that kind of thing was, you know, people like that kind of conversation on TV because it's real. It's authentic. We don't have, we're not reading a script. It's, it's not made up. It's who we are. Uh, she can be a little bit tough on me and I can sometimes be a little bit of a weirdo. So <laughs> I get called out on it. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of like what you guys do. You know, it's like, Whatever you guys banter about is really interesting. We are no stranger to being weird, so we can relate uh, in that aspect very much. Um, Carl, so I did stumble upon something 215 weeks ago. you uh, I don't know if you released it on this day, but you announced it. Um, but you had a special on Hugh Hefner. And yeah. I'm, I'm just curious what it was like meeting him uh working with him and then like we're just working on that special with him that was a really weird day i gotta <laughs> tell you uh because i've been trying to i've been trying to interview hugh hefner for a long long time kind of you know figure out what it is that he had that made so many women do what they did you know it's like <laughs> what was this what was his magic and the truth was there was no magic he just had a vision for what he wanted and he pursued it you guys are in chicago i mean he started in chicago as a magazine uh, you know, editor and and worked in, you know, for Esquire magazine and all these things. And so I, he had a long, long history. And in L.A., okay, so let's say outside of L.A., he's regarded as kind of like this, this you know, this guy who, who, who did a, a magazine full of naked girls. In L.A., he's, he's an icon. He, you know, this, this, this guy is one of the power. He was one of the power players of Los Angeles. When he moved his operation here, it was a big deal. And then the mansion uh, was a place that kind of was, is iconic. And people uh, were talking about, you know, this mansion, you know, what goes on in the mansion and all that kind of stuff. So with all that in my head and, you know, as a kid, when you're a little kid and you, you open up your first Playboy magazine, you go, whoa, what, what, you know, what is this? <laughs> and, and you realize what the world is, is, is all about in, in, in that regard. And it's, you know, uh, for any guy who says he never did it, you're a liar. But the, uh, <laughs> the truth is that when you walk you drive up the driveway to the mansion, you go, so this is the place, huh? Okay. And then you walk through the doors, they're, you know, people greet you and it's really nice. And it's usually, it was some guy in really bad shoes and, ter and terrible clothes. And, and he goes, yeah, come on this way, blah, blah, blah. Set your stuff up here, blah, 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 blah. And I'm looking around going, where are the playmates? Right, right. <laughs> guess what? There are no playmates. It's just <laughs> Hugh's house. <laughs> and he comes down the stairs in his bath, his little red bathrobe, and and he looked really, really old to me. And and and, uh, and he smiled and he shook my hand and he goes, "You know, I've been watching you a long time. It's really nice to meet you." So it was nice that he had watched me on TV. And we sat down and started just chatting like old pals. And we, you know, we went through the usual questions. And and uh, I, I have to admit that I felt a little creepy being in there. It was just a little weird because, you know, you, you kind of have in your head what it's what it was like there at one time, maybe in the 60s and 70s and in the 80s. But uh, but sitting there uh, across the room front or across the, you know, in, in the living room with him talking was really interesting. And, and, and this is a guy who found a niche, you know, and he and that, he said, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go there. And so that's what he talked. He talked about to me was it. He had a vision and he, he executed his vision perfectly and he made it made him a, a bazillionaire and he did very well in his life. And then he died. I mean, that's just an amazing story, but it's an American success story that can't be 
the night. I remember having a hard time pitching that to my editors and the people at, at uh, KTTV when I did the special because he's a very, uh, you know, a controversial figure and people call him sexist and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I wanted to know, I wanted to know, and I wanted to see for myself who, who this guy was. And I think we revealed a side of him that people hadn't known. We mostly talked about business and how his business flourished, uh, given what he was really known for. Do you think um, just, I guess, uh, personality wise, was that one of your bigger interviews or do have you had some other large people under your belt? No, I, no, he's not. He's by far not. Not. I mean, I, I interviewed Donald Trump. I've interviewed uh, oh, wow. Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, you know, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, vice president, uh, Colin Powell. I mean, I've interviewed some pretty important people, the president of Mexico, uh, Carlos Salinas. Uh, I've interviewed, you know, everybody from Tom Hanks to to uh, Julia Roberts, to, you know, you just, I mean, it just goes on and on. It's just part of the job here in Los Angeles is that you, all these people come through the studio and you get a chance to, to meet them. I, I, you know, some kids would think Taylor Swift would be the biggest interview I ever did. I interviewed her when she was 14 and was just releasing her first album. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I would say, I mean, I did a special on, on two people that I really wanted to get to know. Uh, uh, Betty White, and, and and of course him, and so he he was uh, he, he was one of the celebrities that I always wanted. Hugh Hefner is one of those guys that I wanted to at least connect with to see what it was, you know, what it was about him. And so I, I did actually did three people: Dick Van Dyke, Betty White, and Hugh Hefner, all about the same age, all in the same kind of group. Uh, we've lost uh, uh, Hugh Hefner, but Betty White and Dick Van Dyke are still with us. Um, what did you think of Betty White? Oh, love her. Yeah. Love her. She was an amazing sweetheart. Uh, just, you know, everything you expect her to be, she, she is. And, uh, I'm really, I really feel lucky that I got a chance to flirt with her and talk with her and just have a good time. Uh, we laughed a lot. She's naturally very funny, very giving and very warm. And, uh, she was very generous with her time. We spent a lot of time with her and, uh, my friend John Patton set it all up and, and I was so excited to, to make that happen. And, and uh, my friend Shelly Inchewalt, she did the, she produced the whole special and uh, it was, it was really well done. And, and uh, you know, we, we won some, some awards for that, uh, that special and, and it's called love Betty white. If you want to look it up, it's on beyond TV. So with, um, with Betty white here, after those icons under your belt, as well as multiple presidents, were any of the, I'm just curious which interview throughout your, um, career where you yourself were most nervous for, and you were like, this needs to go right. Cause there's one take and it just needs to be, I need to do this right. Oh, I think uh, nerves really happened early in my career. I don't think I, I, you know, in the last 30 years, I've been nervous at all interviewing people. Cause I just didn't have a chat with them, but early on um, I interviewed some, you know, pretty important people at the time. Um, let me think back at uh I interviewed Alice Cooper uh, in 1978. Now, wow. if you know Alice Cooper, he's, he's kind of a wild guy. I interviewed him and Bernie Toppin. Bernie Toppin was writing hit songs with Elton John at the time, and he was working on an album with Alice Cooper. We went into the studio. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I think, all of 24 years old or something like that, 25. And he's this cool rock star. We go into the studio, and it's full of all this really kind of creepy 
dark stuff. And I'm, I'm expecting fully, you know, make made up Alice Cooper, blah, blah, blah. No, well, he shows up and he's like been playing golf. So he looks like a normal guy, <laughs> but he's <laughs> in a studio with Bernie. And, and I literally was shaking. My hands were shaking. I go, this is the biggest star I've ever met. <laughs> 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 and, and I asked him a lot of really stupid questions and he made fun of me and Bernie Toppin and him were laughing at me. And I said, you guys are really making, it's like, why are you making fun of me? He goes, because you're so green, man. You've never done this. <laughs> I said, does it show? They go, wow, man, you got a lot of work to do. But, you know, we'll go along with your game, whatever it is. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. They, so uh, w- with I wanted to ask about Tom Hanks just uh-huh. being like, is he really that but like behind the scenes? Is he really still feel like America's dad material? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tom is a great friend of the KTLA Morning News, which is the show that I hosted for almost 20 years. And and he's always been a big fan of just a regular guy. And he and he comes off as a regular guy. He is a regular guy, very talented, regular guy. But uh, he and Rita have been really good friends to us. And and I appreciate his kind of every man attitude. And he is he is. It's funny. Uh, you know, he, he they call him America's dad now because he's older, but he, he was America's kid because, you know, he was doing a lot of fun movies back in the day when he, he was a lot younger. And so, you know, we're, we're both getting grayer. I know he's he's letting his hair go gray. I'm not. I'm coloring it. So it's, it's a difference. Man. But, he you know, depending on the role, he changes his look. Yeah. But he's a great guy. Yeah. Tom Hanks is wonderful. Yeah. And like uh, was your interview with Donald Trump, was that pre or post? Uh, presidency or during? Uh, no, way before. I, I I first interviewed Donald Trump in New York and uh, oh, back okay. in the eighties. Yeah, back in the eighties, and uh, and then later on uh, in the nineties, when he finished writing his book, The Art of the Deal, he came in to to pitch that book at, at KTLA, and we got to talk to him. It was so funny because he walked in, and his publicist said, "Whatever you do, don't reach out to shake his hand. He doesn't like to shake hands." So because we are who we are at the KTLA show, we, we all went, Hey, Donald, how are you? <laughs> Don't tell us not to do something because we'll do it. Right. And so we very, very nicely shook everybody's hand and we patted him on the back. He says, he doesn't like to be touched. He doesn't like to shake hands. Don't do it. So, uh, so we of course made it an overt ability, you know, went out there and just kept shaking his hand and he sat down and he doesn't like to get close. We got really close to him and, and we talked about his book and we teased him about all the stuff that he, he talked about in his book. And he took it with great humor. I mean, I, I really enjoyed my conversation with him. And many years later, just before he ran for president, I had another occasion to spend some time with him and, and talk with him. But uh, a much older, a little bit more, believe it or not, a, a more mature Donald Trump than I met in the 90s. But a lot of people would argue that, you know, there's. The, the word mature and Donald Trump don't go together. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, at like the eighties was like the, his starting, like starting out being, getting big. Like you got to imagine, I mean, he had found his money and was probably not mature at all. I wouldn't be if I had that, if I, if I was him in the eighties, no, I wouldn't have been mature at all. I don't think if, if you were him in the eighties, I don't think you'd be alive. I don't think, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good observation. Um, Carlos, are you, 
So uh, moving from like around from San Diego to LA, are which I'm trying to figure out what sport team you like. Oh, that, that's easy. Uh, born and raised in San Diego, so uh, diehard San Diego Chargers fan. Uh, was sick to my stomach when they left and moved to LA. I have tried desperately to separate myself from the LA Chargers. Uh, I actually threw all my stuff into a box, all my helmet. I literally, I had six helmets from the eras of, you know, the chargers oh, wow. over the years. Yeah. I had them on my mantle in my, in my man cave, posters, banners, pictures with the chargers. I'd done some work with them. I was so, I mean, I was a super fan. In fact, I had a chargers lamp that I used to put on the desk at KTLA because I rooted for the chargers in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and the LA Rams were still here. And so were the Oakland Raiders who became the LA Raiders not the chargers. And I defiantly put my charger lamp on the desk and got all kinds of letters from Raider haters and Rams fans and stuff. And how could you be in Los Angeles? But I was true to my team. And when they left, they, they, they cut my heart out and I, I felt terrible, but guess what? I'm back. Okay. I was, I was going to ask, I mean, Justin Herbert's pretty amazing, but can you, but, but I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that just like, so you're back rooting for the Chargers, right? Yeah, I'm back rooting for the yeah. Chargers and the Padres. I've never left the Padres. I love oh, them. yeah. But the, I mean, my, I had a similar situation with my, my grandma was a huge Baltimore uh, Colts fan. Yeah. Like back in the day. And then. In the United States, yeah. Yeah. And then I grew up with her being an Indianapolis Colts fan. And like my, the rest of my family is like bears diehard. And I was like, which is super sad for a bunch of reasons uh but then uh i was like grandma like why are you like go bears you gotta go bears you know and she's like no because we had them first in baltimore and like that was the whole thing so i mean it completely makes sense yeah but, it does make sense but it's tough yeah. when you move and they they really just destroy the san diego fan base in, in a way that uh, it was so so hurtful and i i knew what happened in indianapolis and how sad people were there not in, in Baltimore. Yeah. But, you know, when they left in the middle of the night and everything, <laughs> you know, Dean Spanos actually in our face left and took the team. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Can you, can you just like take us back to that moment as in like kind of the, the, the mood of San Diego? Cause it's, it's hard for me or I guess anyone outside of San Diego to really understand what it's like to have that childhood team that, you know, you're rooting for that you grew up around leave just literally up up and leave and now they leave to uh, like a bigger market to get some more money because the nfl is about money like can you understand it from a perspective and then yeah like the whole city of san diego just say f you roger goodell i'm telling you uh the emotions were really really high and i have to say that growing up in san diego the the last place you want to go is los angeles i think there's a real uh uh, it's a, there's a divide between, you know, we have Camp Pendleton, which is a Marine Corps uh, base between what's the, considered the Los Angeles area and San Diego County. So we have this, this divide, but everybody who grows up in San Diego thinks, we're, you know, it's the greatest city in the world, the best weather, the best everything. We have San Diego Chargers, we have the Padres, we have beaches, we have, you know, everything we could possibly want. So, so when, when uh, the Spanos family took over the, the team, from Gene Klein, who was uh, who moved the team from Los Angeles to San Diego in, in 1960, uh, you know, we felt like we'd been betrayed. And every single day on the news, we covered people burning jerseys and camping out in front of the Charger headquarters and protesting. And 
and and wanting to get have Dean Spano sell the team or you know people trying to do all kinds of things to to keep the, the team in San Diego. Uh, Spanos just wanted too much from the city and the city wasn't willing to give it. And in turn, I think we, we, we lost a massive asset for the city of San Diego. And I have my own, my own feelings about how that affects kind of the psyche of San Diegans. But those of us who are diehard charger fans really felt the pain. And, uh, when, you know, and I, you know, I cheered when they, when, when some guy paid to have an airplane banner flying over the stadium in LA saying Dean Spano sucks, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, I was all for that. I was like, yeah, way to go. But I understand as a business owner, you got to take care of your business, try to make, you know, your team more valuable. I guess it is more valuable in Los Angeles now that they have SoFi is an incredible place to, to play football and to watch football. But, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. Like LA already has everything. Why would we give them our team on top of that? Like it really, it really angers a lot of us. And, and, and then they, now they've knocked down our stadium in Mission Valley and they're, they put up a little puny stadium for San Diego State Aztecs. And it just seems like we've gone backwards instead of forwards. Instead of getting a big, t- a bigger stadium like Denver, for example, uh, you know, we end up with nothing, with no professional team and with no professional soccer team. No NBA team. We have a baseball team. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and that's it. And so it's, it's a little bit tough. Uh, and I could go on and on about San Diego sports, but, uh, from, from, you know, from a, f- a football perspective, it really hurt. So would you say football is your like number one favorite sport or like, did you, did you play football? Like what was the, connection yeah, I, played, that? Well, I played one year of high school football. I tried out because it, because nobody else tried out. We had, I think, 25 <laughs> out and we all made it. So it wasn't like a big deal. We're, you know, my, my, my high school was mostly known as a swimming school and baseball school. The Boone family came from my high school. So uh, all the Boones that played baseball came through Crawford High. Wow. So that was what was really what we were well known for. And we won lots of championships in swimming and water polo. I did play a couple of years of water polo and then transferred to football. And played football, but my favorite sport, honestly, is is uh, soccer. I, I love soccer. I'm a big soccer fan. Uh, Carlos, would you trade all 22 <laughs> Emmys to have the Chargers if the Chargers would have won a Super Bowl in San Diego? No. <laughs> No. <laughs> wow, that's a stupid question and you know that <laughs> he's like i was just i was just curious to his devotion to philip rivers the, you know and the chargers and was just curious the closest the chargers got i mean i went to a i went to the 93 super bowl and 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 uh, against the niners the niners you know swept the floor with us i mean it was really mopped the floor with us it was a terrible game but I really wanted the Dan Fouts team to go to the Super Bowl. They were one game away. I think they were playing the Cincinnati Bengals in what's called the Ice Bowl. It was like 60 below zero. It was brutally cold. They couldn't hold on to the ball. And Cincinnati just won by the luck of the draws. No, no team really belonged on that field. It was so dang cold. That was a team I wished had won the Super Bowl because they were one of the best. That's Kellen Winslow was on that team. I mean, Dan Fouts. I mean, you just named the, the, the big names that came out of that group. They're the ones that should have uh, won the Super Bowl. But, ah, no, you know, it doesn't mean that much to me. I don't the Super Bowl. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I do have a question about San Diego. So okay. let's say uh, someone is going to take a weekend trip to San Diego. Can you give me, like, three spots that they have to hit and why? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the first place you got to go um, is uh, La Jolla Shores. Beautiful. It's a beautiful beach, and uh, it's a beautiful flat, giant beach with a, with a Scripps Pier on one side, and and then La Jolla Rocks and Cove on the other side. It's a fantastic place to go, and, and it usually is filled with tourists. So that's that's number one. Number two, the Hotel Del Coronado on Coronado Island, which is fantastic. You go over the big bridge, over the bay, and see this hotel that was built in the 1800s on basically a deserted island. And uh, let's see, number three. What would be number three? Oh, um, I would eat at Costera, (laughs) the restaurant Costera, which I love. What's your order? What, what do I order there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tacos. I mean, my name's Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> well, my name's Jackson, and I would also like tacos. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, it's hard to pass up tacos. I, Their tacos are pretty darn good, yeah. It's a Mexican <laughs> restaurant, believe it or not, but it's kind of a Mexican fusion. It's really fancy tacos. Yeah. Well, and when, last time I was in San Diego, uh, I was at, like, a conference, and someone uh, – it was like the last day and someone was like, oh, I'm going to the, you know, uh, Coronado. And I was like, oh, I was like, I, like, I keep hearing about it every time I've been there and I just haven't gotten a chance to go. So, but now I have something to look forward to next time I go. Yeah, I was little Italy's pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went there. Uh, and then I ended up, uh, just staying in the gas lamp and then I got drunk. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> a little Italy, you got Balboa park, which is fantastic. Coronado. The beaches are amazing. Wind and sea is amazing. You know, it is an amazing place to grow up. Think about, you know, a kid in the 50s where, you know, we drank out of hoses and, and ride, ride our, rode our bikes without helmets. I mean, we were dangerous kids. We loved yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so when you said uh, earlier that, you know, you grow up in San Diego and then you go to L.A. and you're like, uh, you know, it's like I, I personally felt the exact same way because – First time I ever went to California was San Diego. And I went to San Diego like three or four times before I even went to L.A. And by the time I went to L.A., I was like, I'm unimpressed. I was like, this is how I imagined it. Like San Diego was like, what? No way. Uh, Because L.A. is the one you hear about all the time. I was like, eh. But it's, it's a very it's 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 a very industrial feeling city to me compared to San Diego, and other, once you get past the Hollywood sign and you know Santa Monica Pier, that's about it. Malibu's nice, I mean you know, but it's yeah. there are nicer beaches in you know South Carolina than there are in California. So, <laughs> well, and I, I actually have that uh, I was like right downtown, so I did end up going to uh, Santa Monica Pier and doing all that stuff while I was in LA. I even went to the Staples Center, did that. But, I mean, San Diego was still number one. I mean, if I had to pick a place in California. so. Well, and um, Carlos, did you hear about the recent um, renaming of the Staples Center? Crypto.com. Uh, yeah, crypto, <laughs> Crypto.com Arena for on, on Christmas, officially, for $700 million. Such a deal. Amazing. I, I don't know. You know, we're going to, it's going to be really hard for us to stop calling it. Look, remember uh, Denver when Mile High Stadium, everybody called it Mile High Stadium. Uh, and then it became Invesco Field or something at Mile High. And it's really, it's, it's all marketing. And so crypto.com arena, uh, somebody, I love this in the, on the news, somebody said, 
oh yeah so we'll call it the uh what do we call it the the, the crypt the crypt the place other teams come to die <laughs> god <I like> that. <laughs> well and like i mean the same thing happened in chicago with the sears tower uh, well i was gonna say yeah sears tower is now the willis tower and that can just yeah what you talking right about willis? <laughs> no yeah <way>. <laughs> but <laughs> i uh like I was texting someone today and I said, you know, like when I die, I want my ashes spread off of the Sears Tower. And they were like, don't you mean the Willis Tower? And I was like, no, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I want it to be renamed and then spread my ashes. Right, right. But the same thing happened with the White Sox. With It was Comiskey and then it was U.S. Cellular and now it's guaranteed rate and everyone's like, oh, no. Right, but because the giant red arrow points down, it was just a bad mix. But <laughs> it's, all market, it's all marketing, and they mess with those I- iconic things, you know. And you just go, well, you know, can't control it. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it's like it's like you. I, I would love to see them try and rename something like Fenway, and people will just be like, yeah, oh, it's not going to happen. It's like it's like naming Wrigley. I don't even know Starburst Field. Well, like actually, so with the Cubs that happened and like they, they bought someone, they changed ownership. It's not owned by Wrigley anymore, but they kept the name Wrigley and that's how it should be done. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Well, the Wrigley um, family, of course, was famous. I mean, you know, the gum family. So yeah. 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 That's like the first stadium named that way. I think one of the oldest ones anyway. Yeah. Carlos, um, we appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. I do have one of my last questions. As okay. one that has interviewed people and talked to people professionally for his entire life, what advice can you give to a couple of idiots like ourselves that interview and talk to people all the time as well? Like, did you have a did you have like the same preparation you did for every single interview, or did you do like have different routines for the people that or for different? For people with different backgrounds, like what was your what was your mindset and your goal, I guess, for each interview? Yeah, uh, you know, I ha- I kind of do the same thing with everybody, and that is I uh, I immerse myself in whatever uh, person I'm going to interview. I, I want to learn everything that I can, and I and I take notes. I just I don't write like questions out. I take like uh, somebody's into uh, you know. Uh, Volvo cars or, or they're into uh, tennis or they like the beach or they're into their kids and I'll, I'll do bullet points. And depending on how the, because the conversation that you have with an interview sort of flows organically and naturally through, through subjects. And you want to remember the things that you wrote down in the bullet points, because if you write out long questions and, you know, I've seen uh, some hosts with cards with long questions and they're trying to read the question. You can't really read the question. So you look at the, the word or two words or three words that, that basically say what you you think will connect to them. Like you said, oh, yeah. And, and I realized that you took piano lessons when you were 14. You think that propelled you to do what you're doing today. Just something simple like that. And so there's kind of an immersion process. And you have to be really focused on, on the person you're interviewing. And remember that it's not about you. It's about them. Andy Rooney one time, uh, I don't know if you remember who Andy Rooney was, but he used to work on 60 Minutes. And at the end of every 60 Minutes show, he would give you his, you know, his take on what was going on in the world. And he would say, anyway, you wonder why a guy would do blah, 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 blah. He had a really funny way of doing that. Well, he came to KTLA and I was so excited to tell him about the time that, that he and I had lunch at CBS with a couple of other of his colleagues. And I'm, 
And I'm on the air and I'm telling him the story. And he says, would you hold on? We're not here to talk about you. We're here to talk about me. (laughs) (laughs) On air? On air. He slapped me down so hard. Everybody laughed. It was hilarious. But he made his point. The point was, hey, Mr. Interviewer, you're supposed to be talking about me, not you. So I said, oh, never mind. Uh, Never mind. The lunch was not that good anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, and I think that is something that I don't know. I mean, it's it's a little different with a podcast than a talk show. I feel. Uh, but Thank God we're not live. Yeah, but we. Oh, yeah, I know, right? Uh, but we tried that. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you check out our YouTube channel, you can see all of our early episodes. There's one where the audio is just dog shit for the entire episode. I mean, we were just experimenting. That's yeah. really what we were doing. But that's the thing is, like, I feel like when I'm in conversation with someone, I always relate to people through different stories. Like I said, told the one about my grandma how she liked the Colts. Uh, But I mean, it was like, it's that thing that I'm like, I'm always struggling with where I go, Oh, should I like even add that? Because like, no one gives a fuck about my grandma (laughs) liking the Colts, but that's that's not true. Now, for example, we have, we've had an hour here to talk. And usually in my world, we have three minutes, three to six minutes max. So we have to get to it. It's like not, we don't have a lot of time. And on a rare occasion, like like what you mentioned with Hugh Hefner, you know, I had I had a couple of hours to talk with him and we cut it down to an hour. So, you know, it depends on the format and what you're doing. If if you have an opportunity to, you know, talk to somebody and they say, look, I'm here to pitch a movie. So you start up and you say, hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, the superhero guy, name, name a superhero guy. Can't, my, my, my I, yeah. Iron Man, Batman. <laughs> Yeah, any of those guys. And he goes, so uh, he's here. He, look, he's in the new Batman movie. Tell me about the movie. And and it's like two-second question, 30-second answer, another you know quick question, another third. And then, hey, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you. Check it out in the movie theaters. And we're out. There's no chance to really develop a rapport or anything like, like what we've done here. I think we have a good rapport, the three of us. Yeah. I think so, too. I mean, you're going to send us a couple of Grammys that we can show people. <laughs> Emmys. I don't have any Grammys. I have Emmys. <laughs> or, I'm sorry. I said that to him before yeah. the show, too. He was like, wow, how many Grammys? I'm like, Emmys. Emmys. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's all right. Because the, the very first interview we did, I messed up her last name. And I was telling both of them, I was like, this is how you say it. This is how you say it. And then I brought her on to the episode. And yeah, completely butchered her last name. <laughs> Yeah, he like said it like 20 something times and was like, all right, don't mess it up, guys. He was like looking at us. I was like, I think I got it. And then he gets on and like completely butchers it. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Carlos, for uh, coming. The rap song. That's good. I saw him do that. Let's wrap it up. I got it. <laughs> hey, we're at, we're at our hour limit. We had some technological problems. We don't want to keep you too long. You've yeah. been great. It's all good. I really enjoyed talking with you guys. Oh uh, yeah, we had the, a blast talking to you, learning about the you know journalism and the industry as a whole, the stuff we don't see like Emmys. How to be more professional. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is great, and I'll uh, I'll let you know when the episode's out. Uh, and then where can people follow you? Uh, well, I'm on Instagram and everything else. It, it's Carlos Aramesqua on, on Instagram at uh, Carlos TV Radio on Twitter and uh, of course www.beyond.tv is uh, is the website that you can check out all the stuff that we're doing there. So, and, join uh, us. 
and we will include all those links in the description below so uh just uh yeah if you want to check out beyond tv make sure to click on that and uh we'll see you all next time on the untied podcast thank you again carlos so long